So we are now a little past the halfway point of the church year. And this is year B in the lectionary. We go through three years in a cycle, and we come to the same readings. And year B is the year of Mark. Matthew A, Mark B, and Lucas C. John gets interspersed between them. So as we come to Mark, we actually come to this interesting point in his gospel. And what's sometimes easy to forget is that each writer of the gospels, each writer of the, the scriptures, has a unique style and flair to their writings. While inspired by the Spirit and God's Word to us, it was also written by someone who had a style. And so Mark likes to do something we call bookends. He likes to put these little bookends to, to frame sections of his text, of his gospel. And here we come to the end of one section and the beginning of another section. You see, the first five chapters of Mark is a relatively peaceful time of ministry. There's not a lot of antagonizing going on. People aren't plotting to kill Jesus yet. But after this time where he comes back home, he finishes Galilean ministry, comes to Nazareth. After this time going forward, you will see the Pharisees and others try to to get him, to trap him, even like we heard last week from Mark 7. And so when Mark begins, Jesus begins, and it says he comes out to announce the coming of the kingdom of God, and he brings a message of repentance and asks that they believe in the gospel or the good news. And so he goes around and he preaches this message and he heals. And it's interesting, there's this escalation in his healing. First he does simple curing. Then he calms a storm. He has power over nature itself. Then he starts to cast out demons, a power over the supernatural. And finally, the last miracle as we run into this narrative of him returning home is he raises Jairus' daughter from death itself. In the midst of these healings, we have some great teachings like the parables of the lamp under the basket or the parable of the sower or even the parable of the mustard seed and how faith grows. And all of this, all these teachings and all these mighty acts and deeds Jesus does has preceded him into Nazareth. So that when, they, when he comes into the town, they already are whispering about what he's doing, what he has, has done. Now Luke gives us a lot more detail of this encounter when Jesus goes to the synagogue, but Mark moves quite quickly. We know Jesus goes into the synagogue and shares from the scriptures a word. A word about himself. Now, rabbis going to the synagogue is not unusual. It's actually a very common practice. The difference is that that Jesus wasn't a rabbi in the formal sense. He didn't go train like Paul, who wrote the epistle we read today, did. He went to train, become a Pharisee. Jesus never trained. He never went to, to rabbi school. He simply shows up and starts to share this word. And it says the people were astonished. They don't know how to explain what's going on. And the two things that get them, and if you heard it in the gospel today, they say, where did he get all this? What kind of wisdom has he been given? What mighty deeds are are done by his hands? The wisdom he spoke. Where did he get the words he just spoke from the prophet Isaiah? Where did he get those from? That he said, it's now fulfilled in your hearing. And that strength, all the mighty works that when the people were cured and demons were cast out, the people, it says, went out to the surrounding countryside and shared the news. These stories went ahead of him. And people would have heard these and 
And they wondered, how can he do this? There's no explanation, no natural explanation. So what is the source of his power? What is the source of his authority that even nature and demons and death itself listen to him? Exodus would would use the, the phrase signs and wonders. Moses did signs and wonders so that the people of Israel would acknowledge that he was truly doing God's work, that his power was supernatural, that he was sent by God himself. Jesus is doing the same thing. The signs and wonders and the words he brings show he is more than a simple man. That he has authority from on high. That he is sent by God himself. Where did he get these things? The answer is God. But they're afraid to go there. And the reason they're afraid to go there is in the next phrase. Isn't he the carpenter? He was the craftsman in town. He was the one who built their doors and tables and homes and whatever wood things they make back then. That was Jesus. If your plumber came to you and said, I am the son of God, you guys would probably be a little concerned too. This is what Jesus is doing. Isn't he just a carpenter? A carpenter doesn't have time to learn these things or do these great works. Isn't he just the son of Mary? He was the kid that grew up down the street, that grew up with my kids, or maybe I went to school with him. He was just another boy in Nazareth. So much so that they're shocked by what he's now doing. Sometimes people ask me, Pastor, why don't they write more about Jesus' childhood? Because outside of Jesus and Luke, at the age of 12, going to Jerusalem and getting lost in the temple. Besides that, we have like nothing. And then the birth narrative. The reason we don't have anything else is because apparently his childhood was very, very boring. It was normal. It was typical. It was like your childhoods. So much so that now they don't know how to deal with Jesus. They don't know how to react to him. And so it says... It says they took offense at him. They were offended. The actual word in the Greek uh, is skandalizo, which is the word we get scandal from. They are scandalized by the words Jesus brings. They are deeply, religiously offended by the words Jesus would dare speak. And Jesus, in turn, he doesn't actually answer where the source of his power and authority comes from. Not directly. He says this, he says, A prophet is not without honor, except in his native place, amongst his kin and in his own house. Just like they call John the Baptist a prophet, someone called Jesus a prophet, it doesn't go far enough because he's not just the one who brings God's word, he is the word incarnate, the word in the flesh, God's word. And so Jesus says, though, this, this truth is prophets aren't welcomed. And if you go to the Old Testament, prophets have rough lives. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown where he grew up. And then he gets a little bit more specific and more direct, except amongst his kin. You know, the extended family, those you get together for Christmas and Easter, so on and so forth. And then he gets even more pointed, and he said, except for his own house. Those who ate with him every meal and went to bed and woke up with him every day. 
the ins and outs of life. That no one in Nazareth would show him any honor or even tolerate what he had to say. And so they reject him. There's a a, a common Greek phrase that we even use today. It's familiarity breeds contempt. The more we know someone, the more envious or angry we can get at somebody. And it's true. It's true. You've probably experienced it in your own life. If any of you have siblings, we always rejoice when good things happen to our siblings, right? As long as it's slightly not as awesome as me and my own accomplishments in my own life. Just, we always want to keep our sibling right there. And when they excel, we're like, eh, isn't, maybe I only do that, right? We do this. We, we love celebrities, celebrities, and we want to take pictures with them and get autographs and everything else. And do you ever think about the fact that celebrities grew up somewhere? And they have homes? I can bet you every celebrity that has an has a older brother or something, they don't go home and the older brother's not like, oh, you're so wonderful. They don't do that. Familiarity breeds contempt. And we can get angry with these people that we know best. And Jesus is no exception to this. So those most closest to him reject him. And then it goes on to say, after Jesus speaks these words, so he was not able to perform any mighty deed there. Now that's not saying Jesus is a a lacking of ability, but rather he does no healing because of their unbelief. A lot of times we think miracles are the way to get people to believe, and it's not true. They will find a way to explain it, or they'll even ask the right question, where does that authority, where does that power come from? But they're afraid to go to the answer, the true answer, especially in Jesus' case. And so here in this moment, Jesus doesn't do great miracles because they have no faith, and it would change nothing. Except, I love it, except He healed a few people by laying hands on them, as if that is a small thing, as if that is a throwaway thing. But the reason it's a small thing is because the healing of the body is nothing compared to what Jesus truly came to heal. That division that finds its roots all the way back in Eden. To heal that divide between God and man, that before God ever cast man out of Eden, it was us that cast God out of our lives. He comes to heal that. And here they cast him out again. And so it says that Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Amazed. The omniscient one, the one who knows all, is amazed. Speechless is the sense of the word. This is the same word that describes Pilate. When Pilate asked Jesus a question and Jesus refuses to speak, it says Pilate was amazed. That Jesus would not defend himself. Here it is Jesus who is amazed that those who knew him best have such a lack of faith. All the wisdom, all the power could come from nowhere else but the supernatural. Could come from nowhere else but God. But they refused to believe that. And the whole gospel of Mark has this tension. You'll see it again and again with the healings in the gospel of Mark. There's always this tension between faith and belief and disbelief. Jesus doesn't heal because people believe. It's not that faith causes the healing. 
It is the healing that points to a greater truth, that he did not come to heal the ailments of body, but rather the deep brokenness of our souls. To forgive us, to restore us to new life. And only God alone has that authority, which is why in the beginning of the gospel of Mark, that becomes such a thing, such a problem. When he forgives someone's sins and they get angry with him, he says, what's easier, that or telling someone to walk? The healing points to a greater healing. And we, 2,000 years removed, can clamor for signs and wonders and power and wisdom. And God gives us that in his church. Do we believe? Do we believe the words of Christ that come to us even in this place through the word and sacrament ministry? When Jesus says in just a few moments, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Do you believe that his word is true? Or do you find a reason to be offended? How easily we get offended. How easy pride takes over our hearts. And we reject a message of repentance and the good news of the gospel. What's the worst thing you could do? For many of us, if we think about the worst thing we could do, we'll probably at a point stumble upon some kind of sin. Some kind of sin is the worst thing we could do. Can I tell you something? The world believes that too. They might not use the same words, but they believe that. And so all the songs and the movies and the words we always are hearing is that you're fine, you're perfect, you're great, you're, you're just the way you should be, and so on and so forth. And we, we talk this way all, all the time. Our biggest fear is failure. And so we do everything we can to isolate ourselves from failure because failure in our minds is another word for sin. And so we try to protect our kids from failure. We try to keep ourselves from failure. But here's the reality. If the worst thing you can do is sin, then you all are in the worst position possible, because we all sin. The worst thing you can do is not sin. It's not that. There's an actor, Chris Pratt. He made his rounds in the Facebook world recently. At the NTV Choice Movie Award something, I don't know, uh, he gave a speech, and it was like 10 rules to live by, according to Chris Pratt, and it was a mixture of funny and serious. And the last point he said is, you are not perfect. (gasps) And he said, and I don't care what they tell you. They're going to tell you you're perfect and you're great. And he said, you're imperfect. You're imperfect. But there is one who came to shed his blood to fix that. Jesus. This guy used MTV as an opportunity to share the very word we hear today. The worst thing you can do is not sin. It's to lie about sin. It's to think you have no sin. For he who says he has no sin deceives ourselves. We deceive ourselves when we say we have no sin, and the truth is not in us. But those who confess their sins will be forgiven by God himself, by Jesus himself. Do you believe that? Salvation and our pride struggles against us. Salvation is not found within us. It is found in Jesus and Jesus alone, whose blood was shed on Calvary for us, who rose from the dead so we could have life. And we hear that word of promise here every week. And we are called to have that word upon our very lips so that it be the only thing we speak. 
that we would speak it as we believe it from the heart. Do we believe? I pray that of none of us, Jesus would find us and be amazed by our lack of faith. That he who has planted that faith in the Spirit within our hearts through those waters of baptism would continue to nourish that faith so that we would go out and speak the good news, the message of repentance. When we speak a news of love, a good news of love, it's not simply everything's fine and you're per- it's not that you're already perfect. The message is that you're imperfect. But that restoration comes in Jesus. And people will reject you. What did Paul say? What did Paul say? He said, I, I take pleasure. I'm content with my weakness. What is his weakness? Sin. Because his greatest strength to think he's wonderful and awesome and amazing is nothing compared to admitting his sin and glorying in the power of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. He says, I am content with my weakness and insults and hardships and persecution and contract. Constraints. Why? Because in them, Christ is walking with him. We do not have a God who doesn't understand suffering and rejection. He is the one who was rejected by his own hometown. Kicked out. They tried to kill him. After this point, everyone seems to want to kill Jesus. But he doesn't stop teaching. And he goes to the surrounding villages to share this message because those, he didn't try to pander with his hometown. He didn't try to convince them that he's right and they're wrong. He moved on because there were plenty of people who still needed to hear the message. So he didn't stop. He kept walking in the next village and he kept preaching this message from Mark 1. Repentance and the news of salvation that God took on flesh for us. Do you believe? We're not there today, but one of my favorite quotes in the Gospel of Mark is when they, he does this healing and this man says to Jesus, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Do we believe the promises that he offers us even today? Forgiven. Restored. New life. Eternal salvation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.